Welcome to Sleepy Head Stories today. We love to read books, be silly, and play. Me and my mommy are here every week to read you great stories that all are unique. Join us at bedtime, or bath time, or breakfast. We promise it's better than a trip to the dentist. Welcome to Sleepyhead Stories. Hello, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Sleepyhead Stories. Today is April 1st. In America, we call it April Fool's Day. But more importantly, April is Earth Month. In the month of April, we celebrate Earth Day but we're actually going to be celebrating it the entire month. And on Sleepyhead Stories, we're going to be learning about the Earth and the animals on it and all different books we'll be reading that pertain to the Earth. Today's book is a cool book all about the polar ice caps. So the North Pole and the South Pole. The reason why it's so important to learn about these places is one, most people... In fact, all people, maybe a very teeny tiny few people, will ever get to visit these places, the North Pole or South Pole, the Arctic or Antarctica. And that's just because the weather and the harsh conditions make it almost impossible to get to. So the only way we can learn about these places is through books and reading books and watching documentaries and movies and things like that. And two, it's important to learn about these places because they help keep the entire earth healthy and thriving. And when these places start to melt or get polluted, start to lose their, you know, local animals that live there, the rest of the world suffers, even though we'll most of us never ever visit there. So we're all part of one big family on this spaceship earth And that's why we're going to be learning about the polar ice caps today. Now, the book that we're going to be reading, we've read a few of this author's books here on Sleepyhead Stories, Mr. Dan Kanan. He loves when we read our books on his podcast, so I haven't read this particular one called Polar. These are foticular books, which I've mentioned before. If you're not familiar, I highly, 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 highly recommend getting these books in your libraries at home, or if you can't do that, check them out at your local library, but they're so cool. Everyone in your family will enjoy them. The images are part photograph, part digital image, and when you turn the pages and move, the animals and the creatures come to life in such a cool way. Um, They're just awesome books, so please, parents, if you can, I promise you won't be disappointed. There's a whole series of them. So, That's what we'll be reading just after we're going to do a quick shout out, a birthday shout out to a girl who actually lives sort of close to one of the uh, polar caps, the Arctic, closer than I do, that's for sure, down here in South Florida. Um, So let's give her a quick shout out and then we'll get started with the book. Shout out time, guys. Guys, today's shout out is for a little girl and it's a birthday shout out. She's turning six on April 5th. Conchetta, when's your birthday? 
April 10th. April 10th. Conchetta's birthday is only 10 days after Lakey's birthday. Lakey is turning six on April 5th. Happy birthday, Lakey. And guess where Lakey is from? She is from Cumberland, British Columbia. And I have to admit, I know sort of where British Columbia is. I know it's north of the United States. But I had to Google this one because I'm not as familiar with that area. And I'm going to show Conchetta on our globe here. So she's like, see the Statue of Liberty here? Just keep going north, north, north. And she is on the island of Vancouver Island. Here it is on this map on my phone. I know, it does look like a pretty place. And, oh no, I'm wrong, guys. That's Canada. It's Canada. Guys, please don't be upset. So it is in North United States, but it's not on top of New York City. On the other side, sorry, our dog is in the background. It's all the way on this side of the country, above Seattle, Washington. So you see, like, kind of like where this star is, and there's a little island here. See it? That's where she is. I was confusing British Columbia with Nova Scotia. I am sorry. Anyway, guys, we want to say happy birthday. Hannah, Hannah's saying happy birthday too. Right, big girl? We want to say happy birthday to Lakey. And we love the shout outs that we get. We love when you tell us where you're from. And then we literally go on the globe, go on Google Maps, and we look at it because these are places that are so far from where we live. I mean, we've had Tasmania, New Zealand, Malaysia, everywhere, so. <laughs> Hen is really excited about this shout out right now. She just wants attention. Lakey, happy birthday. Happy birthday to you, Lakey. Have a great day. Happy birthday. <laughs> Bye. Polar, a foticular book created by Dan Kanan and written by Carol Kaufman. At the ends of our planet lie polar opposites. At the top is the Arctic, an immense area of permanently frozen ice on the Arctic Ocean, ringed by low-lying land belonging to Canada, the United States, Russia, Norway, and Greenland, the ironically named glacier-covered island. At the bottom, Antarctica, Earth's end, and the highest continent, owned by no country and almost entirely covered by a layer of ice. Surrounded by the most violent ocean passages on the planet and icebergs, some as big as islands. No place on Earth's surface is colder, windier, or more hostile to humans than the two poles. Yet, four million people live around the edges of the Arctic Circle. Some are indigenous groups who preserve traditional ways of life that date back centuries, including the Inuit of North America and Greenland, trainers of indomitable sled dogs, hunters of seals and whales, and the Sami of Scandinavia, 
whose nomadic culture remains intertwined with the great herds of reindeer. Most Arctic residents now come from the south, drawn to jobs extracting profitable natural resources, particularly oil and gas. But no one permanently lives in Antarctica. No one ever has. The vast frozen white wilderness, one and a half times the size of the continental United States, wasn't even discovered until 1820, and the first expeditions to reach the heart of the continent, the South Pole, didn't even occur until nearly a century later, when Norwegian Roald Amundsen was the first to reach the coveted destination in 1911. By the terms of the 1959 treaty, all of Antarctica is dedicated to peace and science and cannot be exploited at all for commercial purposes. Each year, some 4,000 people, mostly scientists and their support teams, spend the Southern Hemisphere summers working at one of several dozen research bases. A few hundred hardy souls brave the long, dark Arctic winter when winds reach hurricane force and temperatures drop to negative 76 Fahrenheit or negative 60 Celsius. Even today, traveling to the poles, whether to study, to explore, or to witness the vast grandeur, requires considerable resources and courage. Ships called icebreakers excuse me, sorry, must cut through the ice that covers the Arctic waters and Antarctic seas. Airplane pilots, pilots must be able to take off and land on runways carved in ice and planes outfitted with skis. Getting to Antarctica requires navigating your way through the southern tip of America, or maybe South Africa, Australia, or New Zealand, then crossing potentially stormy seas. A strong stomach is suggested, and you are encouraged to make a will before leaving home. Everything needed for polar survival must come from places nearer than the equator food, shelter, even water. Though ice is everywhere, there is no liquid fresh water at the poles. In Antarctica, stories abound of scientists and explorers hiking to remote parts of the continent and stepping into a snow-covered crevice and simply vanishing beyond hope of rescue. In winter, a person who steps outside dressed in ordinary street clothes has an estimated survival time of only 90 seconds. We just aren't built for the polar worlds. But other creatures are. There is a rich and complex web of life that flourishes on, around, and underneath the ice where we can barely survive. So we are going to start talking about those animals that can survive in this climate, these extreme climates. The first animal we are going to read about is the polar bear, of course. Right, guys? 
polar bears begin life in deep snow. A fitting start for an animal uniquely adapted to bone-chilling arctic conditions that would wither a human. In the fall, a pregnant bear dips, digs her cozy maternity den in a thick, powdery hill, preferably one with a southern exposure. Cubs are born with their eyes closed and weigh about as much as a can of soup, a striking contrast to the weight they'll be when they're fully grown. Mama bear will have added some 450 pounds or 204 kilograms to her normal frame. Males can weigh twice as much, enough to nurse her cubs throughout the winter and survive until spring when she emerges with her young family and can hunt again. When a cub is only a few months old and weighs about as much as a two-year-old child, the mother initiates the journey to the ice where polar bears spend most of their lives. It's a slow trip. Not only are the cubs learning to use their legs, but they often lack focus. They goof off, they play fight, and they refuse to follow mama bear's directions. Sometimes when the snow is deep, the mother will haul her cubs on her back to make the travel a little easier and faster. This is a vital journey. She must teach them how to hunt. The world's largest land carnivores, polar bears, are skilled and opportunistic hunters, capable of tracking down a wide range of prey. They prefer omega-3 fatty acid-rich seal blubber. They need to constantly add the thick layer of fat that lies beneath a double layer of fur. Bears patiently wait, sometimes for days, for seals to pop their head through the ice and breathe. A quick swipe with their mighty claws can haul 200 pounds or 91 kilogram seal right out of the water. Polar bears need blocks of frozen seas to hunt successfully and will follow the ever-receding ice as temperatures warm the Arctic Ocean in the summer. Adult bears are capable of swimming long distances to find ice. They can swim up to 200 miles or 322 kilometers, but young bears often drown. There's no guarantee of finding available food once they reach the stable ice, and catching seals in open water is a dicey prospect. Increasingly, polar bears have been forced to consume whatever is available. Geese, bird eggs, walruses, perhaps a caribou, or, if lucky, a whale carcass. But they need seal fat to maintain optimal health as well as to keep the seal population in check for the entire ecosystem. Polar bears must be ready to fend for themselves when they're a little more than two years old and the mother is ready to breed again. When a male begins to follow a receptive female, she will chase away her grown cubs, leaving them to survive on their own in the frozen land for the rest of their lives. So there you go, guys. That's all about the polar bears. Um, and they're mainly found in Alaska, Canada, Greenland, Norway, and Russia. Of course, we know what they eat. And they're threatened by melting sea ice, of course. 
from global warming and oil exploration, toxic pollution, and overhunting. There is about 20 to 25,000 of them in the wild, and they live about 25 to 30 years. Let's try for the next one. The beloved penguin. We all know the penguin, guys, right? A penguin looks as if it might topple right over with each step it takes. Like a weeble, the bird leans one way, seemingly a bit too far, before writing itself to tilt in the other direction. And penguins are forever in a hurry, which makes the weeble wobbling seem much more precarious. They're in a hurry primarily because the penguins, the smallest, oh, the Adelaide penguins, the smallest of the six south polar penguin species, identifiable by the white ring around their eyes, have a very short amount of time to do many things. In October, the Antarctic spring, they must travel an average of 30 miles or 50 kilometers from the shoreline of Antarctica and its islands to reach their breeding ground on the continents of Western Peninsula by the start of the summer in November. It's a lot of waddling, but they are suited for it. Layers of blubber insulate them from temperatures that can drop negative 70 Fahrenheit or negative 57 Celsius. Clawed, sturdy feet grip the ice and the epic social march proceeds calmly. If they're tired, the bird flops down and slides on their bellies or backsides to conserve energy. Antarctic winds, at times stronger than hurricanes, can slow the penguins' process, or worse. Entire colonies, which can range from a few dozen to many thousands, can quite literally be frozen in their tracks. At the breeding ground, the busy males males must build nests, and for this they need pebbles, lots of pebbles, and often their affable nature subsides. Building an attractive nest is the only way males have to lure a mate, as well as a well-built nest help protects the eggs from melting snow, which is important. Builders squabble over stones, steal pebbles from each other, or, in desperation, take outright possession of another's work. Once mates are secured and the union consummated, both male and female take turns incubating the eggs until they hatch. Hungry mouths greet the new parents, and the mother goes off to hunt, torpedoing in graceful arcs into the shallow waters for shrimp-like krill beneath the ice. Food found, she shoots up out of the water in a single, nearly stick, straight hop and returns to the colony. New chicks run at her with their open mouths ready, but her own chicks have a distinct peep that she recognizes, and she has a special call for them. When parents are hunting, the colony's The colony's chicks huddle together in mass for warmth and protection until they're ready. When winter begins to ebb, they begin to hunt 
on their own. Those are the penguins, guys. So some quick facts about the penguins. They're small. These particular ones are only 8 to 11 pounds or 4 to 5 kilograms. Um, They're on the coastlines mainly of Antarctica, and they go inland for their nesting, of course. Um, They eat fish and squid and krill. Uh, They live only about 5 to 16 years, and their threats, of course, are the melting sea lice and commercial fishing because they get caught in the nets sometimes. And um, population is 3.8 million breeding pairs. So their population is doing quite well. They're very protected down there in Antarctica. The Snowy Owl. When it came time to create a pet for the world's most famous wizard, author J.K. Rowling made a wise choice. For Harry Potter's loyal companion and personal mail carrier, Hedwig, she selected a snowy owl. Hedwig was an affectionate, intelligent, and protective bird, a bit mysterious and unquestionably regal, much like her wild kin. The owl's generous plumage and thick feathery feet make them look even larger than their actual four to seven pound or two to three kilogram body size. Those trademark white feathers signal age. Chicks are fluff balls of downy gray. Females develop white feathers, though still retain dark striping, while the males become fully white when they're three or four years old, signaling they're mature enough to mate. Snowy owls nest right out in the open, bare earth of the tundra. Territorial and protective, the birds will attack anything that dares disturb hallowed family ground by hooting, whistling, and hissing in alarm, then fiercely dive-bombing enemies, be they other owls, humans, or even wolves. A clutch of owlets, usually a mother has three or four eggs at a time, aren't able to fly until they're almost two months old and will return to the nest to be fed by their parents for another month or so after feeding. Feeding owlets is a full-time job. During the short Arctic summer, the male snowy needs to catch around 1,000 lemmings for his growing family. In seasons when rodents are in plentiful supply on the tundra, two or even three times as many owlets survive to leave the nest. A patient hunter, the snowy owl waits its sunflower yellow eyes trained on the ground below, searching for prey. Though it has sharp eyesight, the owl doesn't need to see its victim to know one is nearby. So sensitive is its hearing, the predator can detect a rodent's smallest movements under brush and snow. Then with mighty wings spread up to 5 feet or 1.5 meters across, the owl soars into flight, then swoops down on its prey until a lemming, but perhaps it could be some other rodent, grasping it with its needle-sharp talons. In summer, when the sun never sets, the nomadic snowy owl spends the 24 hours of daylight far above the Arctic Circle where they take advantage of plentiful prey 
the short season offers. Come winter, the owls head across the Arctic seas, through little is, though little is known about how they survive in the frigid darkness. But some will head south, and lucky Canadians, Russians, and even some Americans who live in the northern and central U.S. can see the majestic owl perched on telephone poles, fence posts, sand dunes near coastlines, or swooping low to the ground looking for food. So, we know they live in the tundra and the grassland marshes and dunes throughout Canada and the U.S. Sometimes they're seen as far as Central Florida or Florida and Texas. Wow, I'm shocked to hear that. Um, they eat lemmings and other small rodents and even some smaller seabirds. They live about nine years. Um, the population is of 200,000. And they're threatened by climate change, of course, severe weathers, and collisions with power lines and cars. Oh, no. Gotta watch out for those snowy owls out there. The Walrus How strange the walrus appears. Trademark tusks descend downward. A prickly mustache sticks up. While front appendages, are they feet? Stick out, catty-cornered to a blubber-covered mass and flip-flop, flip-flop as the cinnamon-gray frame lumbers along. Eyes and ears seem evolution's afterthought, especially considering male walruses can weigh over two tons. What is this animal exactly? Well, a walrus is a pinniped, just like seals and sea lions, named for their finned feet. The genus of the walrus's scientific name, Autobenus means tooth walker, which is an excellent way to describe their curious method of clamping on the ice and hauling their bulk up onto solid surfaces. Nearly three feet long, or 91 centimeters, their tusks are strong, made of ivory, and can grow for as long as 15 years. They're also a sign of social prominence. The longer the tusks, the more powerful the walrus. Walruses are marine animals and are most at home in the water, swimming, diving, coming up for air, and foraging for food. Pacific walruses, which are pictured here, congregate between Alaska and Russia in the shallow Chukachee Sea, where they use their sensitive whiskers to detect the sedentary bottom dwellers, clams, mollusks, and marine worms that make up their diets. They need to touch, their need to touch also extends to their own kind. Walruses simply enjoy being together, and often they hang out in piles, cuddling and flopping all over one another on ice flows in the sea. It's here on the ice that the mother walrus, called cows, and their calves often rest preferably on the sea ice that sits just above their feeding ground. Calves are born on the ice and remain close to their mothers. The cows are hyper-protective of their calves, shielding them under fins and playing with them and hauling them on their backs for hunting trips down to the seabed. 
On land and in sea, calves nurse on the cows fat-rich milk for about two years. Then their mothers usually become pregnant again. Though walruses mate in ice-free water, after some impressive fights between males to determine dominance, cows need the floating ice to give birth. But now the ice in traditional walrus resting and breeding grounds is vanishing. In the past decade, aerial photographs have documented unprecedented numbers of walruses hauling out on dry land when they normally would be stationed on floating ice near their food. Walruses will be forced to commute back to their feeding grounds in the sea, expending precious energy. How will that affect the populations, especially the vulnerable pairs of mothers and calves, remains to be seen. So these guys are huge. They are, we'll talk about the males here, anywhere from 1,900 to over 3,500 pounds or 880 to 1,500 kilograms. They are 9 to 12 feet long, 3 to 4 meters long. Um, Obviously their habitat is in the oceans, but they only go on sea ice and moving ice flows. They really should not be on land. So when we see them on land, we know that that's because they can't find any ice to go on, which is sad. Um, They are in the Bering Sea, the Chukchi Sea, and other Atlantic seas on the coast of Greenland and northern Canada. And they live about 30 to 40 years. The population is around 250,000 for those big guys. Okay. The sled dog. Mush. That single command instantly conjures up visions of gorgeous blue-eyed dogs running in lockstep, panting hard, hauling a sled of fur-clad drivers over snow-covered hills and ice. Or maybe the Iditarod springs to mind, the legendary race from Anchorage to Nome, Alaska. Or Jack London's iconic novel, The Call of the Wild, and our quest to tame animals that can never truly be tamed. A sled dog team operates like a well-oiled machine. Trainers must work with the group of dogs, Alaskan Huskies, Siberian Huskies, and Samoids are popular when the pups are about five to six months old to (laughs) to acclimate them. They need to learn how to wear harnesses and pull weight. They must also learn to heed vocal commands and run in a specific place in the pack. The most intelligent dogs are at the front. They lead. The strongest ones pull up the rear. Slowly, the trainers increase the load to get the dogs aerobically fit and strong. Eventually, the dogs will be able to run for 40 to 60 miles, 64 to 97 kilometers at a stretch, in temperatures that are well below freezing. Thousands of years ago, Eskimos bred dogs with wolves, producing pups that were born to survive freezing temperatures, curling up in snowdrifts for insulation and covering their faces with their tails for warmth. Snowdrifts are like blankets that provide insulation on long hauls. No one knows exactly when someone thought to use dogs for transportation and pulling cargo, but likely it was around 1000 BC in the 19th century. 
The U.S. and the Canadian police use sled dogs to maintain order around the mines during the gold rush. Dog teams also assisted with early exploration of the Arctic and Antarctica and served during World War I and II, hauling equipment and supplies and performing search and rescue operations. One of the most famous sled dog expeditions took place in 1925. A relay of dog teams famously carried diphtheria antidote from Ninana to Nome, Alaska, a 600-mile journey for sick children who would have otherwise died. The journey should have taken a month. The dog teams made it in five days, with a black husky named Balto leading the final two legs in the blizzard. Today, sled teams serve the Danish Special Forces that patrol 5,000 miles or 8,000 kilometers of Greenland's coast, a vast and uninhabited expanse only accessible because of sled dogs. Their superior sense of direction and danger allows it. Inuit communities also still use sled dogs for hunting and fishing and would have to forsake their traditional lifestyles without them. While snowmobiles, helicopters, and other motorized vehicles can break down and run out of gas, well-trained sled dogs keep going. They also provide incomparable companionship on long, cold journeys in the Arctic, solidifying reputations as man's best friend. Guys, I know this breed very well because many years ago, I lived with someone who had a Siberian Husky. For about three or four years, I lived with her. Her name was Maya, the dog. She was all white with crystal blue eyes. She was something else, um, a little bit crazy. Maybe I should say a lot crazy. She was definitely wild, but she was a good girl. So they live about 10 to 15 years, as most dogs do. And they're about 30 to six, 35 to 60 pounds. They're not the biggest, heaviest dog, but they're very, very strong. That's 16 to 27 kilograms. Their average speed while pulling a sled is 10 to 14 miles an hour or 16 to 23 kilometers an hour. And they can travel more than 90 miles or 145 kilometers in a 24-hour period pulling that heavy weight. They're some awesome, awesome dogs, sled dogs. And they actually love doing it. The beluga whale. A pod of beluga whales sounds a bit like a kindergarten class. They chirp and chatter, they click and cluck, they emit whistles, squeals, mews, and moans. They make sounds like bells ringing and popping popcorn. They can even imitate a whoopee cushion. Beluga whales, or canaries of the sea, are chatterboxes communicating in ways only known to fellow belugas, though they are heard from ships and on shore. The lives of belugas revolve around sound. In the dark sea of the polar north, sight is of little use, but they make plenty of noises by moving air between sacks in their blowhole region. When this happens, their trademark bulbous white heads, called melons, change shape. 
Like other tooth whales and dolphins, these melon heads use echolocation to find objects. When they emit clicks, sound waves bounce off objects and return, the echo revealing the location of a breathing hole, perhaps, or prey. Belugas know how to use ice and follow it when migrating. When seas freeze in the fall, they move south, following the fish and the shellfish they eat. In the spring, as the ice breaks, they return north. Belugas lack a top dorsal fin, which makes swimming below the ice sheets much easier. 40% of their body weight is just blubber. It locks in heat and serves as energy, should food be scarce. They're also good divers and can reach depths of about 2,600 feet or 793 meters. People have made good use of the beluga's adaptations and traits. In the 1960s, the U.S. Navy began using marine mammals, including dolphins and sea lions, to detect mines and recover test torpedoes. But in the 1970s, during the Cold War, when the Soviets sent subs to the frigid Arctic, the Navy needed an animal that could tolerate the freezing temperatures and poor visibility. Six belugas were captured to train for the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program. True, the belugas are easy to spot, thanks to their pure white skin, but they're also very curious and appear to be unafraid of people. And when recruited for torpedo search duty, belugas didn't appear to mind. Native Inuits were jumping on their backs and riding them to shore into captivity. One of the captive, cold ops recruits even made headlines when he spontaneously mimicked human speech. In captive places such as zoos and aquariums, the beluga is downright beguiling. Its shape-shifting abilities to make this whale demonstrative, its wide mouth seems to wiggle around its head, forming a crinkly, amused expression, not unlike that of the charming dolphin. It will readily engage with people. It will chat with them, rise out of the water for fish, and allow a little petting, even kisses, too, from children. So, the beluga whale. Now, I know a bit about the beluga whale because I have a family member that lived in Mystic, Connecticut, where one of their most famous, I think, places they're known for is an aquarium that had beluga whales in it. And this was always a tough subject for me because on one hand, they're very well treated, I know, in this particular aquarium, but on the other hand, they're in captivity and they're not in their natural habitat. So it's something we always struggle with, something like that, correct? But to learn a little bit more about them, uh, because a lot is not known, but uh, they are about 2,000 to three over 3,000 pounds, um, 900 to 1,400 kilograms. They live in shallow waters, coastal waters, around icebergs and ice flows. So these aren't like humpback whales or other blue whales that live out in the open ocean. They live, they stick close to the coast. Um, they're up in the Arctic, around Russia, Greenland, Canada, Norway, and Alaska. They eat octopus and squid and crabs and shrimp and clams and mussels and snails, all that good stuff. They live about 35 to 50 years. And of course, they are threatened by climate change pollution, noise pollution, 
uh, which really hinders their ability to find food and to meet and navigate and to care for their babies because there's so much, um, you know, reliant upon sound as we learned that the seas are so noisy from all the ships and cargo ships and fishing that it's almost hard for them to hear and find their way around and I do know that a lot of them get lost that way okay from their pod so and there's estimated more than 150,000 of them in the wild next up the last creature we're going to talk about today is the reindeer. Clement Clark Moore couldn't have selected more appropriate animals to pull Santa's sleigh in his 1823 poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas. Like other polar creatures, the domesticated reindeer, reindeer, or wild caribou, as they're called in North America, are built to stay warm when temperatures fall. Two layers of hair cover their entire body. The inner layer is fine, soft wool. The outer layer is composed of long, hollow hairs that trap in air and hold in body heat. Though the same species, the reindeer and caribou, look a bit different, reindeer, pictured here, are a bit smaller than their bigger elk-like cousins and are still used largely by native Eurasians such as the Samai and the Nanets as they were 2,000 years ago for food, clothing, shelter, and sometimes as pets. Reindeer are equipped to travel a variety of terrain. Fur-covered hooves provide a strong grip on the ground covered with ice, mud, or snow. The bottoms of their hooves are soft and spongy in a more temperate weather, great for marshy ground walking but they harden and become excellent cleat-like tools when in ice or snow. Those hollow air-filled sacks act like a life preserver when the reindeer navigate icy waters of the Atlantic Ocean, I'm sorry, the Arctic Ocean. They can also cover lots of ground and they can travel anywhere to 3,000 miles, 4,800 kilometers in a year in one of the world's most great animal migrations. Reindeer have a nose for survival. Their acute sense of smell helps them find food and determine what direction to go. In order to pick up scents, they travel directly into the wind. They're also used as working for, they work as a team. Their safety is always in numbers and they communicate by snorting, grunts, and bleats. Antlers give the deer their distinctive look and unlike many deer species, both male and females grow them. Like tree trunks with limbs, no two set of antlers are alike. Females use them for uncovering food in brush or snow. Males use them for defense. Predators such as bears or wolves might think twice before going up against a rack of sharp pointed horns that can weigh up to 33 pounds or 15 kilograms. Males also use them to impress the females during mating season, called the rut, when they'll battle and sometimes to the death for the chance to mate. Unlike tree branches or horns of other animals, antlers fall off each year and grow back bigger and stronger. But males and females shed them at different times. 
males shed them in November and they grow back the following spring. Females shed theirs when calves are born in May. Therefore, on the night before Christmas, Santa's team of proud reindeer with their antlers held high all would have been female. There you go. So, even though they have male names, remember that little tidbit. So, they live in the tundra, mountains, and woodlands. They are around the, uh, the Arctic Circle in Alaska, Canada, Greenland, and Northern Europe, even, even Asia. They eat grasses and herbs and moss and shrubs, right? They're vegetarians. Their loss of habitat, their threats are loss of habitat from forestry and oil, mining, development, climate change, and poaching. However, there are a lot of them. Population is about 5 million. So they're doing good. And lastly, the last thing we're going to talk about, about the polar ice caps, is not an actual living creature, but it's something just as awesome and important. And it is the aurora. Or you might have heard of it to be referred to as the aurora borealis. Okay. Ghostly swirls of green hues light up the dusk sky. Tinges of fuchsia, purple arches, and red bands shooting through the waves and filter down to the earth. Glorious light blankets the sky like a silk curtain dancing in the breeze, lasting for ten minutes or the whole night long. Imagine what observers thought when they first saw an aurora light up the night sky. Early recorded reactions ranged from primal fear to kneel. Ancient Chinese and European folklore tells of great dragons or serpents in the sky. Australian Aborigines saw them as the dancing gods. Some Native Americans saw spirits carrying lanterns in search of dead hunters. Eskimos saw souls at play. The English called the phenomenon the nimble dancers. The indigenous people of Scandinavia, the Sami, thought the lights had supernatural powers to resolve conflicts. Before the 1950s, scientists had not extensively studied the aurora borealis in the north or the aurora australis in the south. Now we know that it all begins with the sun. On the surface, where it's millions of degrees, gas molecules frequently collide and explode. Electrons and protons escape and zip into space on solar wind, arriving at Earth two to three days later. These charged particles are largely deflected by the Earth's magnetic field. However, some particles get through, especially where the field is weak and congregate around the Earth's magnetic poles. The charged particles collide with gas particles and emit light about 50 to 400 miles above the Earth. The type of particle oxygen or nitrogen determines the color of the light. The pale yellowish green is the most common Though, full-on red auroras can happen too, just not as often. 
But, as is often the case, understanding the science does nothing to diminish the spectacle. Today, people travel thousands of miles to see the northern and southern lights, all the while never knowing exactly when they might appear. Even if we're in a time of high aurora activity, it's difficult to guarantee a sighting. First, you need a clear, dark night, no full moon, no city lights, and time to wait. Though occasionally, auroras can extend to lower latitudes in Europe and North America, most of the ideal viewing places are remote or inaccessible, such as oceans circling Antarctica and some places on the northern coast of Russia. Stargazers trek to Alaska or Canada or far reaches of Chile, New Zealand, and Australia, or they cruise through northern Scandinavia hoping to see a show. They stay on alert during prime viewing hours from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. with the high hopes that charged particles from space will collide with oxygen or nitrogen here in our atmosphere and light up the sky. So, and there's a really cool picture of the Aurora Borealis at the end of this book. It can be seen northern latitudes of Alaska, northern Canada, Finland, Greenland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, and Siberia. The southern lights, the, Austra the Aurora Australis, are visible in Antarctica, southern Argentina, southern Chile, southern Australia, especially Tasmania, I know we have a few listeners from there, and New Zealand, especially the South Island, and sometimes in South Africa. So guys, there you go. That is the end of the book Polar. I, I know it was a bit of a longer episode, this, but this book is so special and it's so important to learn about this month during Earth Month. I hope you enjoyed it. I will put um, images of each one of these pictures on our Facebook and Instagram pages if you want to see. But like I said, please um, go ahead and try to find these books. They have many different types. They have one about the ocean, one about safaris, and um, really, really awesome books. Okay, have a great day or a great night. I hope you're sleepy. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sleepyhead Stories. Yes, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sleepyhead Stories. Please keep sending in your shout-outs. And remember to subscribe to this podcast so you get notifications every time we release a new episode. Please do. <laughs> Please do it. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day or a great night. And we will talk to you in the next episode. Episode. High five. High five. <laughs>